Welcome back to our study of Ephesians. You have your Bibles, and I hope that you do go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 today. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. And the title of this sermon is The Mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. So far in the book of Ephesians, we've seen a glorious portrait of how Christ has saved us and how he transforms us, bringing gospel unity to the body of Christ. In other words, we've seen a lot about who God is and what he's done. Today, we'll launch headlong into chapter 3. And I'll ask a question. How many of you have a problem with chasing rabbits as you start to pray? You know, you start to pray and then immediately something else comes to mind. God, I come before you to intercede for our missionaries. Squirrel! And you're off on a tangent. Well, you're in good company because that's what we see Paul doing in today's text. Except, for in his case, it's not a random tangent, it's divinely inspired and encouraging. So let's dive into the text, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So, What appears to happen here in this text is this. Paul is about to begin to pray in verse 1 with the words, for this reason. And then verses 2 through 13 are kind of a a parenthesis. And then verse 14, he picks right up where he left off. And with, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So, why does Paul detour his prayer? Well, First and foremost, to encourage the Ephesians and us. 
I want us to consider this context again. Remember where Paul is when he's writing the letter to the Ephesian church. In prison. He's experiencing persecution for his faith. Anyone remember how that journey started? Saul of Tarsus. He's a persecutor of Christians. Ligon Duncan reminds us of this. He says, if you looked back at early Christian history in the first century, and you had to rate who was the person who came closest to snuffing out Christianity, it wouldn't be Nero. It wouldn't be Domitian. It wouldn't be Trajan. It wouldn't be any of the great Roman emperors. It would be instead a man named Saul of Tarsus, who almost strangled Christianity in its crib. That guy, Saul, was on the road to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians. Think about that. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't pursuing Jesus at all. Precisely the opposite. Nothing in him was earning God's favor or making the first move towards Christ. In Acts chapter 9, the resurrected Christ shows up to Saul on that road, knocks him onto the ground, reveals himself as Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting, blinds him, and tells him to go into the city and wait. Saul listens. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10, it says this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So that was the calling. You're going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, essentially everyone, and you're going to suffer for the sake of my name. Do you see that? Saul's name is changed to Paul, and he begins following Christ in that calling explicitly. Fast forward to Acts chapter 21. Paul is in Jerusalem delivering an offering from Gentiles to Jews. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, see this, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, 
with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So this is how Paul eventually ends up in prison at Rome. He's seen spending time with an Ephesian Gentile who they accuse Paul of bringing into the temple. Okay? Keep all of that in mind. Now back to our text. Paul's in prison, about to write a prayer for the Ephesians, and he thinks to himself, you know what? I need to stop and encourage them first. They're probably discouraged by my imprisonment. I mean, imagine that. The guy who shared the gospel with you, who also started your church and discipled you for three years, is now doing time because he was seen with one of your people. It might seem like the mission is failing, but it's not. That's what Paul wants them to see in this text. Our three primary points to organize this text are these. Point one, encouragement in verses one through three. Point two, mystery in verses four through six. And then point three, more encouragement in verses seven through 13. So point one, encouragement. Look with me again in verse one. He starts, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'll stop there. This is an encouragement already. Why? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Paul, a prisoner of Rome, or Paul, a prisoner of Caesar. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul isn't there chained to a Roman guard because he's a felon, is he? He's not there because of his own sin. He's not there because God's plan has somehow failed. Nothing. Nothing happens outside of Christ's sovereign will. Paul is there because Jesus wants him there. He's a prisoner of Christ. He's died to himself and been completely captured by Christ and his will. Throughout Christian history, there have been numerous catechisms used for teaching Christian Christian truth in question and answer form. And one of the more famous and widely used ones is called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question is this. I've got it up here on the screen for us. The question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Paul isn't a prisoner of Caesar or of the devil, is he? Not a hair can fall from his head outside of the will of his Father in heaven. He's a prisoner of Christ. 
His life is tethered to Christ in every way. Like a, a literal prison cell. There's nowhere that he can go that Christ isn't sovereign over. Do you see that? So how about you this morning? Are you a prisoner of Christ? Is your life, your daily decisions, your rhythm, are they captive to Christ? Paul wanted to encourage the Ephesians that God had it all under control and that he was where he was because of this truth. But there's more. Let's keep reading. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of who? You Gentiles. We already hit on this, but Paul is where he is precisely because of his ministry with the Gentiles. This isn't Paul guilt-tripping them either. It's not like, well, guys, I'm kind of here because you got me into this mess. No, he's reminding them that his calling is from God. He hasn't stopped being their advocate in the gospel. He's proud of it. And this is reason for encouragement. He's died to self, and he's living for others. Third, Paul reminds them that he's a steward of grace. Look at verse 2. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but this word stewardship is great. It's the word oikonomia. You can hear the word economy in it. God's economy is one of grace. And Paul is a manager or a steward of that economy. Can you imagine? Just just imagine with me for a moment. Can you imagine being in charge of a king's treasury? And let's imagine that it's a generous king. And you're the one who gets to dispense the king's wealth to his people. What a ridiculously great calling. That's what Paul's saying. God called me to be a steward of his grace for you, Gentiles. I'm going to come back to this later, but I've got to say it. Friends, there are some things about Paul's ministry that are unique to him in redemptive history. But we today shouldn't distance ourselves from his mission. In so many ways, God has called each and every one of us to the same mission that he called Paul to. Christian, you, this morning, you are called to be a grace steward. What a title. That's your job description. You get to dispense God's grace to the world. That's an honor. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ for the Gentiles. I'm a grace steward. But he even takes it a step further. Look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. We'll come back to this in a second, but briefly, the word mystery in the Bible is this. Something once concealed, but now revealed. Mystery. Something once concealed, but now revealed. So when you see mystery in the scriptures, don't immediately think it's unknowable. 
or somehow fuzzy. It's something that was once concealed, but is now revealed. So in light of that, look at what Paul's saying here. The mystery was made known to him. How? By revelation. God revealed it to him. And this is yet another truth to be encouraged by. God didn't leave him or us in the dark. He's gracious to us. He reveals himself to us through his word. So Paul is about to begin this prayer, and he realizes that the Ephesians are most likely discouraged, and he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ for you, a grace steward, and the mystery was revealed to me by God. Are you kidding me? I'm blessed. Don't be discouraged. One commentator notes that Paul knew who he was, and he knew what he was for. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was for. That's an amazing place to be, right? That'd certainly be an encouragement for the Ephesians. Again, how about you this morning? Do you know who you are? And do you know what you're for? When you know the answer to both of those questions, you can make it through anything here on earth. For the Christian, these questions have already been answered for us, right? Who are you? You're an adopted heir of the king. You're made in God's image. You're an ambassador and a grace steward. That's who you are. What are you for? Christ and his kingdom. You're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. None of that changes based on your circumstances or your station in life. Are you on a mountain and life is pretty easy? Are you in a valley and experiencing suffering? These things are still true of you. Know who you are and what you're for. Point two, mystery. Look with me at verses four and five. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Isn't that astounding? This mystery was not made known to other generations. He's saying what God revealed wasn't fully known to Abraham or Moses or Jeremiah or Hosea. But now, it's been revealed. I think at this point, an analogy might be helpful. Uh, Richard Opie and I are reading a book together by Sinclair Ferguson on the Holy Spirit right now. And in there, he quotes B.B. Warfield, who says this. He says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation, and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God 
is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. That's right. Paul is saying in our text, not only do I get to be in the room, Jesus turned the lights on through the Spirit. Better yet, Christ is the light that revealed the mystery. He made the mystery clear as day. Paul's saying, I get to see clearly what those before me only saw dimly, if at all. This is unbelievable. So, what is the mystery? Look at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Essentially, this mystery is everything that he just taught them in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, right? Look at these words. The Gentiles. And there's an important play on words here. The Gentiles, number one, are fellow heirs. It's the word synkleronoma. So they're fellow heirs, members of the same body, sisoma. Third, partakers of the promise, sematokos. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about union with Christ and that prefix S-Y-N, sin, being synchronized with Christ? Same prefix here three times in a row for dramatic effect. This is what biblical writers do when they want to emphasize something. Think about Isaiah chapter 6. God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Paul uses this prefix here to make a clear point with flashing lights. This mystery is that the Gentiles are synchronized with the Jews as the third race in the church. That's the mystery. Gentiles are fellow heirs. Heirs of what? The inheritance that we learned about in chapter 1. Christ. They're fellow heirs. Second, they're fellow members of the body. Remember what we learned last week. It's not... Gentiles becoming Jews or Jews becoming Gentiles. They're both made new and better. The third race in the church. So they're fellow heirs. They're members of the body. Then they're fellow partakers in the promise. Again, we talked about this in chapter 2. The covenants of promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and David are for the Gentiles too. And praise God for that, because that's us. That's the mystery. Think of it as an open secret. It was concealed, but now it's revealed and available for all of them and for us to see and be encouraged by and to praise God for. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are in on the secret. This is God's plan from the beginning. It's not plan B. So think back to Warfield's analogy. Gentiles are part of God's plan from the beginning. Abraham was told that he'd be the father of many nations. 
But the Jews always assumed that it would look like Gentiles converting and becoming Jews, or something like that. When Christ came, the lights in the room came on. The plan was revealed and proclaimed and accomplished. God's plan hasn't failed because Paul's in prison. The mystery has been revealed. Point three, more encouragements. Verses 7 through 13. Look with me at verse 7. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul just can't stop talking about grace, huh? Think about this. Again, remember the context. Paul is in prison. And he knows that the Ephesian church is probably feeling sorry for him. His response could have been, I know, guys, it's pretty hard in here. The accommodations aren't great. I don't deserve to be in here in the first place. Woe is me. Instead, he encourages them with a message of God's grace to him. Don't forget who Paul was. He was a persecutor of Christians. God would have been absolutely just in striking Saul dead, snuffing him out of existence on the spot at any moment of his life. Instead, he makes Paul, or Saul, a minister of the gospel. The actual word translated minister is the word for servant here. Instead of being justly judge and the recipient of God's wrath, Paul gets to be a servant of the good news. This is grace. It's all of grace. He's getting a gift that he doesn't deserve. He's saying to the Ephesians and to us, I would take this imprisonment a thousand times over because I get to share the gospel with you. I get to be your servant. A servant of the good news. And so I'll ask us, is that your posture in the face of hardship? Confession. It's not always mine. When I face even a remote amount of hardship, I tend to complain, to feel sorry for myself, to be frustrated with God himself. I need to repent of that posture. Paul realizes God's grace to him. So Santa Cruz Baptist, when you, when you realize how, go, how good God has been to you, it'll be hard to complain about anything. Realizing God's grace leads to contentment and humility and praise. Look at what he says to them in verses 8 and 9. He says, To me, though, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Paul, elsewhere in the scriptures, has called himself the least of all the apostles. But really, Paul, the least of all the saints? Are you serious? 
In fact, the phrase translates less than the least. Is he being a little bit over the top? No. He realizes exactly what he deserves as an enemy of God. He realizes the depths of his sin. And this causes him to love God's grace more than anything in the world. Christian, it's so important for us to honestly acknowledge our sin. It's not about morbid introspection or just being an Eeyore all the time. We acknowledge our sin so that we can be thankful for God's grace given us in Christ. Look what Paul gets to do. Preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul gets to tell the nations that Christ always enriches life. Can I let you in on a little secret this morning? You do too. This privilege and this calling isn't just for Paul. You, Christian, get to tell the world that Christ always enriches life. The riches of Christ are unsearchable. Does this mean that the Christian life will always be easy or painless or without suffering? No. Remember who's writing this letter and where he's writing from. Regardless of your circumstance, Christ always enriches life. You get to share that message. And you know what? You're already living that message. Look at verse 10. And I'm going to start again in verse 8 just to catch the flow of what he's saying here. Verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. If, if our church had a formal mission statement, verse 10 would be a central part of it. God has a plan. And according to verse 10, it's the church. Through the church. Not through well-meaning individual Christians. Not through parachurch organizations, as great as they are. Not through missions organizations, as great as they are. Not through ministry events or concerts or conferences. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. This is remarkable. What is God's manifold wisdom? Paul uses another fun word here. It's a word that means many-colored. It's the same word used to talk about Joseph's many-colored coat in the Greek version of the Old Testament. One dictionary defines it this way. Varied beyond measure, and in a way which surpasses all previous knowledge thereof. See this. When you look at the church, when you look at the church, you see God's many-colored wisdom. You see him as wise beyond all measure, surpassingly wise, in a way that you don't see anywhere else. 
And who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, there's fierce debate on this. Some think it's angels, and others think demons. In Ephesians 1, Paul uses the same language to describe angels, and in Ephesians 6, he uses the same language to describe demons. I think he's talking about both here. For demons, they're forced to look on the church and to see God's plan unfolding. Think about how glorious this is. Satan has to look on the church and see God's wisdom every time it gathers. Look, Satan, people of of various backgrounds and races and economic statuses all unified in the church around Christ. Look, these are my people, God says. These are people that Satan says shouldn't be unified who should be at war with one another. Yet, here they are, together, as family. Second, I believe the angels are watching. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says this. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Again, This is glorious. If you've ever been to a sporting event and looked up at those really expensive box seats, that's where the angels are sitting. And guess who they're watching? The church. John Stott says this. He says, it is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. It is through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to angels. Think about this. Angels aren't omniscient or all-knowing. They, unlike God, don't know the end from the beginning. They're learning much of the plan as it unfolds. Think about the angels watching over the incarnation, watching Christ be born to the Virgin Mary in a manger. They celebrated. They sang. They saw God's glory and God's wisdom. Yet, they didn't know everything. Paul is telling the Ephesian church and us that they, the angels, are watching the church in awe as God's manifold wisdom is displayed. So this morning, as we gather, it may seem insignificant to you, but heaven and hell are watching. You, church are displaying the absolute wisdom of God's plan. Do you see just how important the church is? It's central to history and central to God's plan. It's where his wisdom and the glory of the gospel gets shown off. 
The church is so much more than just a place for you to come and consume sermons. It's a display of God's glory. It's the gospel made visible. Does the church have issues? Yes. Every single one of them, us included, because we're sinners. Yet, God still uses her. She's his plan A for reflecting his character to the world. Friends, we get to be a part of that. And I'll simply say, while this wisdom is being displayed both to demons and to angels, it's also displayed to a watching world. See this. Jews and Gentiles, they have nothing in common, yet they're in the church. They have nothing in common except for the gospel. That's why this, this displays God's wisdom. This is why it's so important that churches not be centered around affinity or age or race or anything else. The church shouldn't make sense to the watching world. They shouldn't be able to look at the church and say, that makes total sense. They're unified because they all surf. Or they're all in the same stage of life. Or they're all you fill in the blank. No. They should have to look at the church and say, I don't get it. That's the only place in our city where young people, old people, black people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people, rich people, poor people, people who don't serve, people who absolutely rip, all love one another. The only answer is the gospel. That, my friends, is the wisdom of God. That's the church. Do you see how this would be encouraging to the Ephesian church? Do you see how that's encouraging for us this morning? We are part of a cosmic drama, and we display God's manifold wisdom. The church is a big deal. In light of that, we'll end right where Paul does. Look at his words in verse 13. So I'll ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Do you see both sides of this? Paul doesn't hide or downplay his suffering in any way. He doesn't try to tell them, if you follow Jesus faithfully, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and no suffering ever. No, he's not Joel Osteen. He says, he says yes, I'm suffering. I'm in prison. But it's glorious. It's all part of God's plan. He's using it for you, and he's using it for the gospel's sake. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Look, the last two years have been a wild ride, haven't they? Many of you have experienced hard things. Turmoil in family, with friends, outside animosity, deaths in families real loss, confusion, abandonment, disillusion, hurt, offense. Don't lose heart. You're a prisoner of Christ. You're a steward of grace. 
a fellow heir, member of the body, partaker of the promise. You're a part of the church that displays God's wisdom. Don't lose heart. Living for Christ, even if it gets a lot worse, is worth it. Don't lose heart. Let's pray.